0: Karen Jennings is a South African author. Her debut novel, Finding Southbeck, was shortlisted for the inaugural Salat Prize for African Fiction. Her memoir, Travels with My Father, was published in 2016, and in 2018 she released her debut poetry collection, Space Inhabited by Echoes. Karen's novel, An Island, was longlisted for the Booker Prize in 2021. Karen works with the mentorship programs run by Writavism and Short Story Day Africa, both of which promote writing in Africa. She is particularly concerned with the quiet lives of the everyday people who have been mostly forgotten by the politicians, big businesses and the rest of the world. In this way, she strives to give the ordinary a voice that can be heard and appreciated.
1: Today's a little bit cool, but this is summer now, so most of the time it is quite warm and and humid. It's the rainy season, um, which is quite different from my home, which is in South Africa, in Cape Town, where we normally have the rain in the winter. So I always find it quite strange to have the rain in the summertime, because the rain in, in the winter always made me want to stay in bed and eat pancakes. And it's not quite the same when you have rain in the summer, you can't
2: really stay in bed and eat pancakes.
1: In South Africa, the tradition is we have them just with cinnamon, sugar, and a bit of lemon juice squeezed on them. I sort of forgot about it just recently, um, and, uh, and then I suddenly thought about it this morning. I thought, wow, I was, well, my novel was long listed for the Booker Prize. What an extraordinary thing to have happened. Because I'm all the way here in Brazil where it really, you know, no one cares at all about it. (laughs) And so, um, so I've been quite sheltered. But I will be, at the start of December, I'll be moving back home to Cape Town in South Africa. And then probably it will start to feel more real because... I will see people, I'll be engaging again with a literary community. Um, and so I suppose it will become more of a reality than it's been able to be so far.
0: I am irritated by my own writing. I am like a violinist whose ear is true, but whose fingers refuse to reproduce precisely the sound he hears within. Gustave Flaubert.
1: Well, I have a manuscript that I, I, I say I completed it in 2019, but I have since looked at it again and I despise it. I despise it. Absolutely. Oh. But, but I have signed with Holland House um, and so I'm just busy rewriting it and I will give it to them. Um, well, early next year, but I, I'm that's what I'm busy working on. It's fiction. It's a novel about um set in the southern suburbs of Cape Town, very much in the suburbs where I grew up and where I used to live. And it's about a woman who she's about 52 years old and just about how she's never really managed to come to terms with the big change that happened in South Africa in 1994 when we moved on Um, from a uh, what, what I suppose you would call a totalitarian state, the apartheid state, and then moved on to a free and fair democratic country. So it's not about racism. That's not what it's about. It's simply about kind of getting stuck in a moment and then not being able to move past that moment. The original end of the you know of the of the manuscript that's been written but I'm rewriting it also maybe her reaction will be different this time round I'm not sure I'll have to see I'm still feeling my way a bit
0: Find out the reason that commands you to write see whether it has spread its roots into the very depth of your heart confess to yourself you would have to die if you were forbidden to write Rainer Maria Rilke
1: I don't remember a time where I didn't want to be a writer, which is such a cliched thing to say. I know that people often say that not only about writing, but about music or, you know, any kind yeah. of thing that they're passionate about. But it was never even. I can never say that it was a passion. Exactly. It was more just something that I knew that I knew that it was what I would do. Um So much so that,
2: (laughs) this is awful,
1: but so much so that I didn't do anything about it. So it wasn't something that I worked at for a very long time. I I knew I would be a writer, that it would happen. And so it was only in my 20s that I suddenly thought, oh, I, I better start really writing. I can't just sit around and wait for it to happen or for inspiration to strike me, which is what I had been doing before. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then that's when I really started, and um, probably my very, very late twenties that I began to commit to it as a as a daily thing, as a as a thing that I did every day. That I had goals. That I had, um, you know, even if it was going badly, I would sit down and if I had said to myself, for example, I will write 500 words today, even if they're terrible. I, then I would sit down and write those 500 words. I had written, but it was always, it was never with any kind of discipline or looking to the future. It was if I was struck by inspiration, I would write something, and I wouldn't spend enough time reworking it. I would write something. I was very much of the opinion that the muse strikes you and then what you write, what you end up with is pretty much. That's it. You don't have to spend weeks and months and sometimes years polishing it and reworking it until it is um, what it what it should be, which is the best that it can be. So but I suppose that's also I was a teenager. So What did I really know about discipline and self-discipline? Nothing. I I didn't even do my homework for school, so I wasn't going to be sitting there rewriting my stories over and over again. I feel like I was being very lazy. I, I seem to remember my teenage years just lying about, lolloping about, not doing much of anything.
0: There is no rule on how to write. Sometimes it comes easily and perfectly. Sometimes it's like drilling rock and then blasting it out with charges. Ernest Hemingway.
1: It's the best technique that anyone has ever invented. It is having a nap. When I get stuck, when I'm frustrated, I I immediately I switch off. Uh, well, normally I write by hand, so... Um, it's not that I have to switch off the the computer, but so I'll put my, I'll close my notebook, put my pen down and I will climb into bed and put the, pull the covers over my head and just lie there. And even if I don't necessarily sleep, um, I sort of doze. And in that time I am replenished. And whether the, sometimes the answer comes to me, but whether it comes or doesn't come, at least I'm replenished enough to know that I can go back and try again, and you know a lot of writing is also about chasing something. it's about hunting it down um, so whether in the writing process of a first draft or whether that's in the editing and the editing and the editing and the editing <laughs> over <laughs> and over and so that you are um, ruthlessly hunting this thing down until eventually you get to that point where you say well I've caught it I have it now um and so most writing days are just a slog and then some writing days are and these are very rare but they are part of what (laughs) makes it so exciting is when you write and you feel like like you have transcended time and space and you are superhuman and you are the gods and the stars and the universe and creator of all things. It's, a <laughs> it's quite a, an, a topsy-turvy uh, process, but I do enjoy it in retrospect. That's also part of the joy of it because you think that you're tracking one animal let's say if we continue with the analogy you're mm. tracking one animal and then suddenly a completely different animal leaps out at you from a bush you're helpless you you're, you're <laughs> taken taken hostage by this animal and you you have no choice that becomes the story that becomes what you are compelled to do <laughs>
0: I was working on the proof of one of my poems all the morning and took out a comma. In the afternoon, I put it back again. Oscar Wilde.
1: What I will say about my poetry writing is that, yes, I've written poetry, but I don't consider myself a poet. I certainly don't have that innate skill. I haven't yet, I think, found a strong poetic voice or certainty yet it's all very much still too uh too influenced by my prose writing style and so my dream is to one day go off to some mountain in the cabin a cabin in the mountain somewhere and <laughs> to um to read nothing but poetry and then come out emerge one day and feel that i have more of a poet's voice within me and more of an ability to to understand how to write and and engage in a poetic way because i think that i've been so focused on fiction writing and they are very different you can you know you can write fiction poetically but that is not poetry one of my dreams in life is to to become a poet Uh, But I think it will take quite a lot of time and focus. And um, perhaps when I'm a bit older, uh, older and wiser and have more time on my hands. Not with anyone else. I don't want other people around. I want to be an absolute hermit and be driven to the point of madness by loneliness and have only the words and only the poetry and the rhythm rhyme and come out of it um i'm not sure i was going to say with with a long beard and tattered clothes but i'm not sure i should be having a beard (laughs) it's a very fanciful idea i'm sure if i were to actually live through that it would be hell on earth but um i still can't help it i'm still very drawn to that idea
0: A successful book is not made of what is in it, but what is left out of it. Mark Twain.
1: I do tend to both prefer to write and to read shorter novels. Part of it is because of the way that I write. And I, like I said, I write by hand and I really think very 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 carefully about every single word every single thing that happens i mean it took me a week to write 300 words this past week and um that's not i suppose that's not really normal for many writers and i think that many writers because of the computer it makes it much easier for them to simply type and type and type and type. And um, there's a lot less self-editing, a lot less thought that goes into it. I don't mean to abuse them or, or be unkind. I'm simply saying that I think too often, because I've worked as an editor as well, I see the manuscripts, they come to me and and they might be perfect in terms of the grammar in terms of the spelling, but what you're left with is often just too much, too, too, too much. And so I try to have just enough. Um, And one of the things that I think was quite influential in that was when I was um, an undergrad student at the University of Cape Town, I did a... um, oh i can't remember what you call it but it was an elective course where it was a self-guided research thing that i did where um i i was in the classics department studying um latin literature and then i was allowed to do a course in the english department where i did creative revisiting of some of the the myths told by ovid and my my supervisor he made me do these exercises, and at the time, they really irritated me. <laughs> but he, he made me write um, haiku after haiku after haiku. Oh. And he would, he would say, think what you want to say, the, the short story or the, whatever aspect it is or, or genre that you want to do. But take, take it and reduce it to, to a haiku before I'll let you do anything else. Wow. And so that was incredibly hard and very frustrating, but it really taught me to think more about the essence of what what is being said and what is the, the core. Um, rather than telling a narrative that just flows where it wants to go, there has to, at the very core, be something, something small and meaningful. And... And then again with the the haiku you have to be so careful about the words that you choose and so there again I learned about what what word you pick and and taking the time uh not only are you constrained by um by the number of syllables but you also have to think well I I I have to be able to distill this perfectly and I think that's Part of my my writing journey, I suppose one would call it, that I'm still thinking in that way. In small terms, I I don't want extraneous information. I don't want things that will confuse the issue. I want to be focused um, and really. I want things to be essential. Okay. I have a, a little book that asks you a, a question every day of the year so um you know it will say something like when was the last time you watched a movie or something you know something quite simple like that but then sometimes the question is write a a haiku about something that happened to you today and increasingly i find myself getting irritated i'll turn to the page and i'll think oh i don't have the time for this because (laughs) Because you think, okay, it's only 17 syllables, but really, it's a lot of effort. You have to really sit down and think and put time into it if you want to do it properly, of course. Um, yeah. And I think that that it becomes very easy to be, to be lazy and to be wanting something to be instantaneous. Um, you know, I'm not saying anything new when I say that right now we live in this state of instant gratification, we always Mm. want it now, 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 we don't want to wait. Um, And I commit that sin all the time, I mean, just in the small way of looking at this notebook and not wanting to write a haiku about my day.
2: This is an extract from an island, from a scene between Samuel, the lighthouse keeper, on the island and the refugee who has washed up on the shore and they do not speak the same language so there's some difficulty in them trying to communicate. The man smiled when he saw Samuel, raising a hand unnecessarily high in a wave. Samuel returned the gesture, his low, at level with his belly. He murmured, Good morning, though the man could not have heard it at that distance. When he reached Samuel, the man smiled again, pointed at the the sledgehammer and mimed the act of using it. Then he wiped invisible sweat from his brow, puffed elaborately, seeming to suggest that it was hard work. Yes, he replied, and wiped his own brow in agreement. The man surveyed the morning, then, exaggerated as before, he lifted his shoulders, inhaled deeply and puffed out contentedly. He gestured at the view and made a sign with his hand that seemed to mean something like good or beautiful. For a minute the men stood in silence. Samuel cleared his throat put a toe against the head of the sledgehammer. The man looked around and then wrapped his arms around himself, vibrated his lips, made his body shiver. There are jackets in the hallway, Samuel said. Just take whichever one you can fit into. The man looked at Samuel. I suppose I'll have to show you. Samuel took a step back in the direction of the cottage, but the man prevented him from going further. He placed his hand on Samuel's chest. Samuel felt his heartbeat quicken. The man was very close. He could smell his breath, see the cracks in the dry skin of his lips, the wide pores that dotted his nose. The man held him where he was and spoke. I don't know what you want, Samuel said. What are you saying? What do you want?
1: to you earlier about the value of naps and um, <laughs> yeah. it, it came to me while i was napping i oh, was wow. at a, a writer's residency in denmark and i had just finished um a draft of a, a different manuscript and i lay down and i won't say that it was a dream um it was, it was like a vision it, it came from outside it wasn't from inside um, and it was a vision of an old African man on, on an island with a lighthouse. And he was very, he was very angry. He was his, he was frowning. He was angry and he didn't want anyone on that island with him. Wow! And, and so then that's that I woke up and I thought, this is an idea and and then at that time, there was also a lot in the news about the Syrian refugee crisis. So I I began thinking about this, what is it that, that the man doesn't want? He doesn't want interlopers, he doesn't want foreigners. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about different attitudes to foreigners and how during the Syrian refugee crisis, there were a lot of people in Europe that Took pity on, on the refugees who welcomed them, who wanted to to care for them. It was a humanitarian crisis, but at the same time, there were ships or boatloads of African refugees that were, you know, just drowning in, mm. in the sea, and no one said anything. No one says this is mm. a humanitarian crisis. This is terrible. They just accepted mm. it. Um, and then. Um, closer to home, in South Africa, we also have had several very, very violent um, xenophobic riots, with mm. um, which stems in part from the um, the failures of the, the government to care for its people, to give them what they need, um, and so the the very poor are frustrated and justifiably so. But I was thinking about what is it that drives them to such violence and such hatred that yeah. they will then go out and turn against um, their fellow human beings who just because they look different or, or speak in a different language that they will then go and physically harm them if not even go yeah. to the, the point of killing them. Mm.
2: This extract from an island uh, tells a little bit about Samuel's past, when he was living on the mainland, and when there was a lot of um, violence and insurrection going on. And in this case, it was really to do with xenophobia. It was not a thing that Samuel cared to remember. Not even with the distance of time was it something that he could return to without shame, how he had taken part in what the general called the culling. Samuel had had no problem with foreigners, but he was a young man, full of anger, and when the surge came in his neighbourhood he was swept up in it. He did not like to think of it afterwards, to remember how he had picked up the axe from the woodpile and joined in in the streets. He killed no one that day, though everything he smashed, everyone he chased, was in that moment to blame for his father's naivety, for his ruined body, for their lost home in the valley and the poverty of their life in the dirty city. Shame did not come immediately. Not for chasing the friends of his father out of their home, even as they begged him not to. Not for smashing their baskets and leaving their beaded creatures lying around as though the products of a dreadful slaughter He laughed as the woman tripped in the street, as the man pissed himself, as their child gabbled in a foreign tongue. And afterwards, when the culling had been subdued, when the bodies and debris had been cleared away, he examined the the axe carefully. He knew he had struck nobody with it. Yet even so, when he saw a spot of blood on the handle, for several days he walked with his head very high, in the manner of a hero, Samuel's parents did not guess his involvement in the massacre, if they ever found out it was not through him. They did not wonder at the increasing distance between themselves and their son. There had been difficulties ever since they had come to the city, but he had always taken care to provide for the family. Now he brought home nothing. He rose early, went out, did not return until a few hours before dawn, always empty-handed. He slept little, rising again, departing. He left the city he left the flat to walk the city, to observe the places left empty by the fleeing or the dead. Gone was the pride th- that he had felt, gone too the pleasure and the drop of blood. He was afraid of what he had done, of the destruction he had wrought. He chose to confront the absences, to stare them out, all the while trying to comfort himself that really he was not to blame. What had he done after all? Hardly anything, almost nothing. He had been little more than a bystander. He was innocent. I think it came
1: as as the story developed in my mind, and as I made notes for it, and I did I did some research as well, and I had certain ideas, certain um, visions of what of moments that i wanted and so i i wrote them and then it was a matter of figuring out how they fit together what what goes where and in what order and and what what would be the meaning behind them so that so that it, it's not just a, a pretty a pretty picture or a or a well-written moment that there's actual meaning behind behind everything and that that meaning is carried throughout throughout the novel
2: this extract from an island comes from a part towards the end of the novel where samuel the lighthouse keeper on the island and the refugee um i suppose you'd say there's some tension between them because um samuel does not enjoy having someone else in his home. He heard the sound of water in the kitchen, water running without any thought for the rainwater tank and its limited supply. He went forward, stopping in the doorway, when he saw the table laden with freshly washed vegetables. The man was at the sink, washing more. There was water all over the counter on the table, darkening the cement grey floor. What are you doing? Samuel said the man looked up and smiled waving with his left hand splattering more water onto the floor as the tap ran and ran samuel moved forward and closed the tap then he picked up the tatty brown dish towel and began wiping down the counter the man spoke his voice loud he pointed at the vegetables on the table then at himself samuel clicked his tongue the man had picked too much not everything was ripe enough that it had needed Picking. Some of it could have been left a day or two, he thought, forgetting the approaching storm. The man continued to talk at Samuel, and Samuel knelt, knelt down to wipe the wet splashes on the floor. As he spoke, he took the pot from the sideboard, and, as easily as if the cottage and its contents belonged to him, he opened the cutlery door, drawer and took out the knife. Samuel no longer thought about the previous night's threat of a cutthroat. He thought only of that word he had spoken down in the stone hut. Violence. Though now he uttered another word altogether. Mine. He stood up from where he had been kneeling. And again, mine, as he grabbed the knife out of the man's hand. Mine. 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 I
1: remember walking the dogs every morning, every morning waking up, walking the dogs and thinking this book is going to kill me, this book is going to kill me because it was so difficult to create a balance. There's very little that actually happens in the book. There's very little dialogue and so to be able to create tension to be able to create uh, a sense of a person and place mm-hmm. and to create all of that meaning that i wanted it was very very challenging and again because of the way i write i don't want to force things on the reader it it always has to be subtle and so I I really really struggled. I grappled with that with that every day and um sometimes I despaired and sometimes I didn't despair as much and sometimes I despaired even more but <laughs> <laughs> but I I had a belief in in what I was doing. I believed that it could be done. Um and so I persisted. And that's part of how I think one should be as a writer, that you start with an idea and it's very, very messy. It's never going to end up exactly the way that you planned. But the point is to have that belief in what you're doing. And even though what you write at that moment might feel absolutely inadequate, you have to know that you're advancing one tiny little step towards the next time, and the next time, and the next time. I don't like the novel *An Island*. I don't think I was successful with it. I didn't achieve what I wanted. But at the time, it was the best that I could do. If I were to rewrite it, perhaps I would do it differently. And I don't mean in terms of the plot and the characters and anything. I simply mean the words. I think I would read Reevaluate some of the words I use so mm-hmm. the very fine detail when I had the idea for it I wrote the idea down very briefly just basically writing down old man island lighthouse that was it really really just a few words and then I had that other manuscript that I was busy working on at the time and so I just put an island aside and then I applied for a Miles Morland Scholarship and uh, Miles Morland the Foundation gives scholarships to African writers every year and they're very, very um, important and valuable, those scholarships, because they give African writers the chance to focus only on their writing. That really helped. and and that scholarship is for the period of a year and you have to be very disciplined because they expect you to give them a certain number of words every month and that's when i wrote an island and i wrote it three or four times writing by hand so the number of times i wrote each sentence was <laughs> was quite extraordinary but so within a year which i know sounds like a short amount of time but it was incredibly intensive it was I did nothing else with my life. My husband and I had just moved to Brazil and we were in the middle of Brazil in Goiânia in a city where we didn't know anyone. Um, I couldn't speak Portuguese. We were on the 17th floor of an apartment block. I had been told in no uncertain terms, do not leave the apartment. It's dangerous. You will be kidnapped and raped and all sorts of things. So I was stuck in the apartment. I had no friends. My husband was at work every day. And so I was in forced isolation. And that isolation and that, I suppose, a low level depression that I fell into really helped me with, with the writing because it was all I had in my life. And that also helped me to identify a certain, to a certain extent with, with the main character, with Samuel, because here I was on the 17th floor of this apartment block and completely isolated from the rest of the world and looking out and, seeing life happening off in the distance. And um, yeah, it was quite a strange experience, thinking back on it now. I wrote it uh, initially as, I think, one sentence and then as uh, and probably as a haiku as well i had i have or i had all the notebooks and then in 2019 i just in a fit of peak um threw away all my writing notebooks yes. every single one about <laughs> for all my books i threw them all away no, so no. i don't have that anymore i think it was also valuable because at that time i had become quite disillusioned with the loneliness and isolation of my life in Brazil and just think I was reevaluating everything and I I needed to free myself and that was one of the ways I could free myself. I, I threw away my notebooks, I said, I'm never writing again and it wasn't really that I wanted to give up on writing. It was that I was so unhappy with my life, more because of where I was and my situation. Mm. what happened then is so i had given up writing and was doing or trying to find other things to to do with my life and then out of the blue that's when the booker prize long list was announced and i suddenly thought oh oh i suppose i have to start writing again (laughs) it wasn't like a, a punishment or anything i just thought oh okay i'll start again and and that's that's what it did i had time to I suppose, clear my brain or, or recover from, I'm not exactly sure what, but now I'm writing again. So I, I'm, I'm not upset about any of it. So I suppose it just reminded me of who I am and what I am and what I want to be and, and can be. Uh, If, if I remain, it sounds silly to say this, but if I remain true to myself, so just Help me to return to myself.
0: South African author Karen Jennings was longlisted for the Booker Prize with her title, An Island. And is the island only small is a moving, novel transfixing which... novel of loss, political upheaval, history, identity, all rendered in majestic and extraordinary prose. The Booker Prize judges panel, 2021.
1: I thought it was a mistake because it just seemed so impossible. Partly because I had given up on writing so why now why suddenly come chasing me <laughs> in this way why was writing pursuing me um, and then and then I remember also thinking my life will never be the same again and and not in not in a sense of oh now I'm going to be rich and famous or not in a sense of oh, this is terrible. It was neither of those things. It was nothing extreme. It was more like, I can now be a writer. But that's what I want. And now I can be it. This thing that I had been trying to be, which is such an amorphous, intangible thing what is an author I mean it's very very silly (laughs) to even say I'm trying to be an author but it was I had been trying and trying and then I had turned my back on it to find that I could go back to myself as an author it's like it became something more internal and private actually which is strange because it was quite a public thing with the the book along list but it became about myself alone that if I returned to writing it was because I wanted to do it because it was for me and that my writing would be again about what I believe in and what has meaning to me rather than Rather than anyone else or any prize or anything like that, so it's kind of strange thing to have a big prize like that or or great awareness, sort of global awareness in a way, make me feel more private and internal about it all in a sense it's it's all consuming. this is how I think, this is how I live, this is what I am. And so when, when I cut myself off from writing, I was very, I was very lost. I, I didn't quite know what I would be or how to be. Um, and I think different people, they engage with the world and with others in different ways. I'm always writing in my mind. I'm always writing the book of what is happening to me at this minute. One thing that's interesting is that quite a few people have said that they recognize it as Robben Island, which is mm-hmm. the island where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned along with other political and non-political prisoners. But that was never, for me, you know, I've been to Robben Island, I've visited it, and it doesn't really look like that at all. It, it was more just something that i created in my mind and then it was it was also based a little bit on a place that i visited as a as a child we went to um a lighthouse called Cape Agulhas lighthouse um, mm. which is at the southernmost tip of africa and it's not on an island but i do remember going there as a child and it being quite a memorable holiday you know seeing this lighthouse climbing up the lighthouse in 2019 when i was at home visiting my mother she and i actually we took a trip again to that lighthouse and it was it was so strange to see it again because i remember it as really otherworldly and then to visit it and it was still beautiful but it wasn't i had i suppose created it in my my mind um to be more like samuel's lighthouse samuel's mm-hmm. little part of the world so it had changed um uh, changed in my mind you also add to it with time and and with imagining it or trying to recapture it in my mind so many years later as i was working on an island um i had recreated it and re envisioned it and then seeing it as it was, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, I think you're right, like a kaleidoscope, there are all different aspects of it, little, little shards of it all coming together.
2: Search for truth is the noblest occupation of man. It's publication a duty. Madame de Stael.
1: I always have a problem when people talk about um, Africa as a country, where they say, Oh, I'm going to Africa. Africa has many, many countries, many different languages and cultures. So, where are you going? You can't be going to the entire yep. massive continent. But I was thinking about it more in terms of. Africa as a concept if you go back to the 1890s and the scramble for Africa when the European powers came together and they divided it up and took parts Mm. of it for themselves and I wanted to look at what is the legacy of that moment there's a there's a famous cartoon from the time where the the leaders of of Europe are sitting around a, a cake and the cake is Africa and they're slicing it up and each Mm -hmm. person gets a slice of cake. And so I wanted to look at what are the consequences for an ordinary person of that event going going forward throughout the 20th century and and onto the present. What are the consequences and how have those consequences impacted their way of thinking, their way of seeing others, their way of existing in the world? and again, also thinking about violence, how, how are we programmed towards violence by, by events of the past? And so I wanted to look at it on the small scale um, because I knew that I, it would be impossible to do it on the grand scale. You can't look at all of Africa. You can't look at this incredibly huge moment in, in history and then try to cover it completely and so that's when i decided that the simplest way to do it and to bring it into focus would be to use this island as a space um, in which to engage with that so a simple small space limited characters very limited action so that really it's all about focusing In South Africa, the, the big problem is that we, we don't have a very big reading public. And books are expensive. People don't have money to buy books because they are expensive. So when you are given, given the choice between buying a paperback that was published by um, an overseas publishing house and is of a famous uh writer from the uk or america where you often can get lots of information about them because it's all online and their ad campaigns and all sorts of things or you're faced with buying a novel by a south african author who you don't really know anything about and the book does tend to be more expensive um Mm. So what are your options? You tend to think, okay, well, I'll buy the safe choice, I'll, and the cheaper choice. Uh, yeah. So I think that is part of it. The other thing is that the the publishing industry really has been suffering in South Africa, and just with uh, with COVID, with the pandemic, it really, really suffered. We're not. We had our our first lockdown in South Africa, there was six weeks and you couldn't buy books. It was only essential items and books were non-essential items. Mm. And during that time, at least 20 magazines closed down forever. Mm. They couldn't carry on. So that has an effect on, because people do, they are more inclined to buy a magazine or read magazine articles than they are to buy a, a, a book. Um, And then you have all of the journalists and the freelance writers who then were out of a job because 20 magazines, that's a huge number. What's left to the publishing industry, they have to publish what they think is going to make money, um, because unfortunately, that is what what has to be the driving force. They can't publish what they believe in. For example, I had submitted an island to a big South African publisher. And they said to me, we love it, but we can't publish it because it will never make any money. And our marketing team refuses to to accept it for publication because it will not make money. And the kind of books that make money are the genre books like crime fiction, romance, DIY, non-fiction books as well. Literary fiction and this book, which is quite experimental... Is not going to make money and i had the same response from from the big publishers in the uk no one wanted to touch it it's not only in south africa it's around the world that there's this idea that if it's not going to make money then there's no point what happened is that i would i would get these mixed responses that i would get A response that, well, it's not quite African enough because there is an idea of what an African novel should be, which is of a poor black person suffering and then making their way to the West and then their life is better Um, or something along those lines. You know, it's always that 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 kind of story of hope and salvation coming from the West. Uh, So that was not being African enough. And then the other thing being too African, well, because that simply means because it's set in Africa and that by itself is too African. People don't want to read about Africa. They want to read about, and I'm talking here about a a more of a Western readership. And this is what the publishers Mm -hmm. think, that people don't want to read about Africa. They want to read about their own doorsteps. And it's again that kind of escapism. Uh, Well, I want to read about the girl next door meeting the Mm. boy next door, Mm. and I don't want to read about someone who had an uncomfortable life and who who has suffered, and and I don't want to read a novel that doesn't have a happy ending. That's one really good thing about Damon Galger, who is South African, who's just been awarded the Booker Prize, and it's it's really it is wonderful because. It turns the world's gaze not only on South Africa, but on Africa and says, look, we have stories, we have things. It's not always going to be your idea of what Africa should be. We, we have a lot more and come, come and get it. Robert Peter's um the the man behind Holland House Books and who I had been speaking to him about how how frustrated I have been in my career at not being published in South Africa because I am a South African author. And and talking about the difficulties of being published both within my within my own country and then being published overseas that It's very very hard for African authors to be recognised and to be taken seriously. And I had said one day, if I have the money or the wherewithal, I'd like to publish. I'd like to have my own publishing company where I take maybe even just one book a year and really uh, work with that author and and publish the best the best version of that book that I can. And then he said, well, that that really inspired him to have this idea for a prize and so the island prize is for a debut work of fiction by an African author either living on on the continent of Africa or in the diaspora and they um, uh, have this opportunity to submit uh, a manuscript to us and we will be uh having a a competition we have um judges we have uh, a reading period and the prize is first prize is 500 pounds second is 300 third is 200 but then they also have the opportunity to be published both in the uk and in south africa um because we're also collaborating with my south african publisher caravan press and um and then also We hope to be able to introduce them to an agent and to also give them feedback. Uh, So it is a way of bridging what can seem like an insurmountable gap between um, the rest of the world and Africa. It's a a stepping stone and it's a, a way to create a bit more unity and a little bit less of a sense of us and them. I'm very excited about it, I have to say. I, I think it's great. And, you know, this is our first year doing it, so we're still um, finding our way, but I think it's something that will continue, and I'm I'm really pleased about it. It was important to me when choosing the judges to choose people that weren't necessarily just a name, that they were people that are very much involved in the community, the writing community. So. Yes. I'm afraid I'm going to butcher this name, but Hilda Twangueru <laughs> from <laughs> Uganda, who's incredibly valuable, who's been involved in FemRite, um, uh, which is an organization in Uganda that gets people writing. And originally it was focused on getting women writing, but now um, more and more it's also men. Um, and they do wonderful residencies and, and publications and events and, and she's really, she really has, um, as the expression goes, her finger on the pulse of what's happening. And then mm-hmm. the other judges, uh, Obinna Dunwe from Nigeria, who who is um, an award-winning writer in in his country, and who's also he's um, involved with. Uh, literary journals. He's involved with the community. He's a nurturer. He, he encourages people. He's he's fabulous. So mm-hmm. it's really important to me that um, these are the people that are reading the books and judging them. I have a sort of quarter quarter finished manuscript that's in the drawer that I have to dust off and try to try to figure out what I'm going to do with it because that's what I was working on when I when I turned my back on writing and so I need to go back to it and apologize but it is set in the year 1595 so it's quite different I suppose it's a it it has some of the same themes that emerge in an island where it's looking at what changed and what it was in history that led people towards violent acts um, and how the, the West coming in and claiming things, how that has influenced um, life both in the past, but that has repercussions to the present day. In a way, you know the world can feel both very, very small and very, very big at the same time. and um, that's also part of what writing and reading stories is about. It's about delving into that that vastness and that that smallness um, simultaneously.
0: Island is available from hhousebooks.com and all major bookstores. This was the Holland House podcast with Karen Jennings.